Anyways, we're back for another episode. Hooray! Give me the scissors and I'll just cut you out of my life. I type such spectacular sensationalism to tell you that I'm seriously serious about how deeply I desire my ride-or-die relationship with adorable, unobtainable you. You've given me the world and I only want to share it with you. You'll be my very best friend because the rest will be dead, to me at least. Looming at the windows with zombie moans of, you're in too deep again. But I just don't care because I awake each day living only for you, unhealthy and unseemly as it seems. I feel like I've reached a a point where I very much learned my lesson from jumping into things with far too much enthusiasm. Enthusiasm that some people, frankly, just do not deserve. And I am, you know, like a proper grown-up who approaches things with responsibility and shit. And so I'm like, hmm, do I want to abandon my friends and who I am and, and everything that matters to me for this one person? No. Why? Because... Other people are not a certainty, right? I mean, I guess maybe my friends aren't either or my identity as a person, but they're far more likely to be reliable. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know. I just feel like maybe I trust them more. And I trust myself and who I am and who I want to be more than someone who's essentially a stranger because... I don't know. I just, I do. (laughs) Um, But I kind of wanted to write about the other side of that, you know, when I didn't feel that urgency to hold on to what I already had because I wanted to have this other thing that I felt I needed to be complete. So now that I've kind of learned from that, it's easier to look back and say, okay, So you were being a bit of a crazy pants. On today's episode, we have a very special guest. Joining us will be Guardian journalist and author of The Weighing of the Heart, Paul Tudor Owen. And we'll have an interview with him coming up a little bit later in the show. But right now you are about to hear the first chapter of his debut novel, The Weighing of the Heart. This is from chapter one. This is the opening part of the book. Sooner or later, everybody comes to New York, and I was no exception. For me, it was art school that brought me over. 
and I left behind the brash primary colours of late 90s London gladly and without remorse. Here I could reinvent myself, as others had before me, among the shining slabs of a city that seemed to have scale where others only had size, where history was measured in the minutes rather than the centuries, where each of its 10 million inhabitants began their lives anew each morning when they awoke and pulled up the blinds. After college, I did everything I could to remain, winning a job and a work permit that came with it at the Bougainville Gallery in Chelsea, and spending the next few years living in a tiny apartment in Greenpoint with my girlfriend, Hannah, working together at the gallery each day and growing gradually further and further apart. In early spring in 2011, things finally came to a head and I moved out for reasons I don't really want to go into here. I left and went to stay on the couch of a former colleague in whom I'd increasingly been confiding. His name was not Jeff, but I have to give him a name and Jeff will do as well as any other. Hannah's name wasn't really Hannah either. Jeff had two aunts who lived uptown in one of those huge late 19th century apartment blocks where wealthy families often take up a whole floor. Their apartment was enormous, sprawling, Jeff said, with an elegant roof garden looking out in a wide panorama over Central Park. But it was also ragged and unloved and slowly rotting away. His aunts only lived there two days a week, spending the rest of their time at their other home on Long Island. To make sure the place didn't collapse completely, they usually took in a lodger. And as luck would have it, Jeff told me, they needed one right now. Since I was desperate to find somewhere to live, he would take me around to meet them. We could see whether we hit it off. Far from being desperate to find somewhere to live, I was in fact quite enjoying my evenings in his apartment in Clinton Hill, watching reality TV with his witty and outspoken girlfriend Severin, whose parents had named her after the character in the Velvet Underground song Venus in Furs. But I'm a very suggestible person, and I must admit that as Jeff and I talked about it more, I found myself drifting off into an agreeable fantasy about life in that cavernous apartment a stone's throw from Central Park. The white whirl of the Guggenheim visible from the living room window, MoMA, the Met, and I began to feel really quite excited about the whole idea. For the five days each week when the Peacock sisters would be away, I would have the whole palatial penthouse to myself, and it was pleasant to feel, even in a vague and materialistic sense, that I'd be making some progress in my life after my breakup with Hannah, which I felt had set me back a step as the rest of my friends busied themselves, getting married, getting pregnant, getting comfortably settled in for the next stage of life. So I went up there with Jeff and Severin after work the next Wednesday, Severin boasting during a subway ride that the sisters viewed her as the daughter they never had, and they introduced me to Marie and Rose Peacock, we all had a glass of California red, and Marie and Rose took me on a quick whirl around the apartment, including the small bedroom beside the roof garden that would be mine. Then it was time for the peacocks to leave for the theatre, and we all took the lift down to the street. As Jeff flagged them down a cab, Marie Peacock asked me a few questions about my job, tugged thoughtfully at her coat cuffs, peered into my eyes, and abruptly proposed rent of $100 a week. A sum so minuscule for the Upper East Side, she might as well have made it one peppercorn, 
I couldn't shake her hand fast enough. We've been looking for a lodger for a while now, she told me, as we sheltered from the spring breeze under the building's awning. A year or two off and on since the last one, put in Rose. We like to have someone we know, continued Marie. Someone we know, or a friend of a friend, said Rose. Or a friend of a nephew, said Marie, waving a gloved hand in Jeff's direction. So it often takes us a while to find the right person. The last young man painted the bedroom walls green, Rose recalled mournfully. I think we'll say no painting the walls this time, decided Marie. Is that all right, young man? Of course, I said. You can move in tomorrow if you like, added Rose, as Jeff held open the cab door. So I did. British citizens have an inalienable right to flirt with the far right. On boat rides, at big rallies, and on brightly lit stages. An inalienable right to evade tax if your will happens to land in the right pockets when you die. An inalienable right to send the poor off to war for oil and a special relationship. To meet the curious and carefree eyes of civilian children with missiles. Yes, we can go wild. We have an inalienable right, if we get into government, to creep down the corridors of primaries and nurseries, snatching up free school meals, milk and pencils from tiny hands and mouths who want to learn about their inalienable rights, which will turn out not to be as rigid as those of the raptors that haunt their hallways, looking for new ways to make the public pessimistic. However, As the prototype for the robot who ruled over us once said, without the awkward dancing and meme potential of her successor, that we, British citizens, in a free and fair society, do not have an inalienable right to be gay. Murder, tax evasion, stealing milk from kids and making friends with paedophiles is fine though. Margaret Thatcher has an inalienable right to shut the fuck up. That's from a collection that I'm going to be releasing at the end of the month. Um, I'm releasing it on the 28th of June to celebrate Pride Month and the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Because I wanted to write something about, you know, LGBT history and LGBT culture and kind of where we are now and where we were then. And, you know, um, so I'm, I'm really sort of enjoying putting the finishing touches on it and you know it's been really great to be able to you know celebrate some of the historical figures within the LGBT community and also learn more about some of the people that I I didn't know so much about and obviously I had a good time telling Margaret Thatcher to shut the fuck up because I mean she needed to be fucking told really somebody should have done it when she was alive someone should have done it when she was the prime minister because girl i just mm. i i've always found it very interesting that the thing that she had such an issue with and then so did her successor as the second female prime minister um had you know, Theresa May also had such an issue with LGBT people. And it's like, 
really? You want to call us immoral? You want to say we're corrupting the children? Sweetheart, take a fucking look at yourself. You know what I mean? I, I, I mean, girl. Both Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May, historically, I think, will be remembered as morally bad people. Both of them had huge records of unreasonable cruelty, to be real. Um, You know, Theresa May was, you know, deporting LGBT people to their deaths and, you know, sort of allowing people to be put through hell due to, you know, her welfare reforms that aren't really reforms. It's more just sort of stripping the welfare state until there's nothing left. Um, you know, just there's so much to talk about with Theresa May. And I think I think I talked about some of it last week. Um and Margaret Thatcher was is really just the same. You know, there was she I find it hard to look at her and her record and say that she cared for the people that she was there to serve. And I find it hard to say that she was acting in the national interest. Um, And Theresa May is very much the same. But then these are two people who firmly said that they thought LGBT people were immoral and that we were, you know, dangerous for young people to know about and shit like that. Theresa May later tried to walk it back and, and she was like, well, I've, I've grown and I've changed and I voted to give you gay marriage. What more do you want? But I mean, I mean, the damage was done, sis. Like, <laughs> nobody cares for your apology, which, you know, was probably just for PR purposes. Because, you know, we've reached a point where you've realised that, you know, the way you look at things is considered quite gross. Um, And I I wouldn't care for an apology from Margaret Thatcher either. Not that that's going to happen. But, you know, (laughs) if she she called me up tonight on the spirit board, I'd be like, I'm just going to let it go to answer phone. I don't give a fuck. Get out of my space, sis. I just, I think when you are in such a huge position of responsibility and power, saying something that hateful is reckless as fuck. I don't think there's any excuse for it. And I think that, you know, I just, I don't, I don't get, you know, considering that both of them don't really have a great record of morality themselves And also, at the time, both of them were prime minister. And then at the time, like before that, before they were the leaders of the party, it's not like the Conservative Party was some haven of morality either. You know, if you look at the party's history, there is, you know, financial impropriety. There is, you know, cases of abuse and harassment and you know things like that I just people in glass houses you know even if your glass house is very fancy because you know you got the money for that sis you probably still shouldn't be throwing stones because it's still a glass fucking house you know what I mean um (laughs) 
but I just, I guess I had some thoughts and I had some feelings. So, it's, I mean, I guess I was thinking about it because with the whole leadership kerfuffle concept, 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 contest, that was the word I was trying to say. Um, basically the Tories are picking a new leader because they kicked Theresa May out and she's having a little moment, you know, tears on the dance floor or whatever. Um, frankly, most of the candidates are shit. I don't really want any of them to be my prime minister, frankly. I I don't want any Tory to be my prime minister. I'd really just like them to fuck off to the opposition benches or to no benches. That'd be nice if they got literally zero seats. Um, but anyway, um, but Esther McVeigh is just oh, the absolute state of that woman. She basically because there, there's been the, the whole protesting around LGBT inclusive education and she was asked about it. I, d- I don't even. And she was like, well, you know. I, I think they, they should have a choice, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you, you think it's acceptable for them to be standing in the streets, screaming at children, sending death threats to teachers because they're, they're upset about their children learning about LGBT people. Really, sis? Really? And I know that the same excuse is going to be, oh, but we're the party that gave you gay marriage. Don't be upset with us. And I'm like, God, I don't give a fuck. I I don't. I don't. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yes, thank you for taking, you know, several centuries to allow me to marry a woman if I, you know, if I want to. Thank you for giving me the same rights that straight people have after, you know, just so many people from our community had to ask over decades. Thank you for giving us that small little bit of human kindness that we should have always fucking had. Like, that's not an excuse. And I just... (sighs) Anyway... The city of Liverpool really ought to sue Esther McVeigh because she makes, she makes them look bad. It's embarrassing. <laughs> and she was talking about some shit about like invisible borders to solve some issue with Brexit. And I was like, girl, girl, like, really, sis? And obviously she's a member of parliament. She has access to way more information about this whole thing than we do realistically speaking and that's what she's coming out with like hmm okay okay sis I'm embarrassed for you all right nice anyways and then this other this other bitch Dominic Rob was like oh I believe in equality between the genders but I'm not a feminist and I'm like that's what feminism is you dumb fucking oh my god it was like it was an oxymoron from a moron. It was just the whole thing is so fucking embarrassing. I'm like, we don't have fucking time for this. Just fucking pick whichever one of you is the least likely to rescind people's human rights and get it together, okay? <laughs> and can the opposition get it together too so that one of you can get into government and we can sort this shit out, please, for the love of fucking God. 
we don't have time for this. It's so embarrassing. I just... And these are the grown-ups. We're paying these people thousands of pounds a year, right? And for what? They're... they're oh, God, it's wild. I mean, not that I'm saying that I... Because I've talked about this. I, I don't think I would be a good prime minister myself. But I don't feel that that means I shouldn't be able to complain about the current one. Or lack thereof. Um, <laughs> I just, I mean... I don't think you need to be in a position to be a good prime minister to be able to look at what's currently happening and say this is a goddamn fucking hot mess. Because, I mean, it is. I, <laughs> I think maybe that's the one thing that, you know, people on the leave side, people on the remain side, and just people in between who don't really give a shit, I think that's something we can all agree on, is this is a fucking mess. These stupid babies... As I mentioned earlier, we have a very special guest on the show today, and that is a journalist and a novelist. It's Paul Tudor Owen, the author of The Weighing of the Heart, which is a New York-based novel that I think will enchant you. And he is here with me today. Hello. Hi, thanks very much. And then... I didn't realise that I was the first guest ever, so that's more of an honour. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. I kept saying to myself, I'm going to get guests on the show. I'm going to do that, but then I just, I, you know, it's how it is sometimes. But we, we got there. We did it. It's Absolutely. fine. <laughs> so The Wayne of the Heart is is available now, and people are loving it. I have seen so many positive reviews. I loved it. Um, so your you your background is in journalism. So what led you from journalism to creative writing? Well, it was almost um, the other way round in a way because I think um, I've always wanted to be a to be a novelist. So I've always wanted to write fiction, and I think um, from a young age I was always sort of. Um, messing around writing comics and stories and I always wanted to do this um but I think um when I was coming to the point of leaving university I think I um realized that um it's very very difficult to make a living as a mm. as a writer and so I sort of tried to think about something else that um might give me some of the things that I got from writing um but I could actually earn a living. And um, that's how I first got into to journalism. Um, so then, you know, I, I was sort of really pursuing both of them this whole time. So I um, started off working at a local newspaper in, in um, northwest London, and then I eventually um, started working at The Guardian, which is, is where I work now. But... 
meanwhile, in my evenings and my weekends, I was plugging away at, um, at writing fiction. And, um, you know, eventually uh, this year, um, that side of things bore fruit at last. That's, that's really interesting how sort of creative writing kind of followed you the whole time and kind of the, the desire to, to create that kind of work was sort of always somewhere within you. I mean, that's, I, I can definitely relate to that myself, um, you know, wanting to create things and it's, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things, you know, it's sort of like being haunted by creativity. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, it's expressed itself in other ways too. Like, um, mm. I've been, I've been in a band before and, you know, I really love music and love expressing myself through, through music too. Um, but I think, um, for me, the difference, I know you, you do music and poetry as well. And I think for me, mm-hmm. the difference was, um, I kind of thought that, um, the music that I was making, the music that I was writing, was not really of professional standard, and I would never, I would never get to that standard myself. Um, but with my writing, um, I felt that if I did keep working on this, I could get to that professional level. Mm-hmm. And it, it it came to fruition for you because. Here you are with a wildly successful debut novel, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I, I think, kind of the dream of most people who who write. They they hope for that, and and that's happened for you. So that's wonderful. Absolutely, it's been really, it's been really exciting, and um, I think the whole process of this this sort of last few months leading up to the book coming out, planning the book launch, um, and then the book the book coming out and the reception being really positive um both in terms of you know people of of people thinking it's good which is really nice but also just very sort of positive and supportive um response from everyone i know and that's been really that's been really nice as well hmm. so your your publisher mentioned uh actually that they closed their submission window early in part because they believed when they had your novel that they had found the novel. How did it feel to hear something like that? <laughs> it felt great, you know. I think um, I, I felt like I've been trying to get to this point for so long, like both both with this book and then and then sort of with previous um, previous books that I've been working on that never never got anywhere. But particularly with this one. I think I started writing it in about 2011 and um I kind of I kind of immediately when I've got this setting so um it's about this young British guy um living in New York who um splits up with his girlfriend and he moves in with um a couple of rich older ladies on the Upper East Side in an opulent apartment and they have all these um priceless works of art on the walls and he and the girl who lives next door they um steal one of these artworks and um the um 
the stress of the theft uh, starts to work on him and it's an ancient Egyptian scene, the artwork that they steal. And as this stress uh, continues to, um, to attack him, the the imagery of ancient Egypt starts to come to life around him, and and um, and you're unclear really as the well this is the idea anyway is you're unclear as the reader whether that's in his head or it's supposed to be really happening. So when I'd sort of when I'd sort of written the first two chapters and got this kind of setting and this basic premise, I kind of thought um, this is much better than stuff that I've written before, you know, that, that I think I'm really onto something here. Um, and I was working with an agent at the time. And I think that um, because the previous manuscript that I'd been working on before this had not got anywhere, I think he, he, he'd sort of lost interest in me, really. So I kind of... Um, decided to um cut ties with him um which we did very amicably um and I tried to find another agent and um so I did that and I ended up finding um the agent I'm working with now um Maggie Hambry and having a really good process of um finishing the novel and the editing process um but then it didn't um she she was sending it out and it didn't get anywhere um publishers didn't go for it um and this was around the time that um i was living in london at that time but then um i got a job in new york in 2015 and um around that time uh we were talking to a publisher and um uh then i moved there and um it didn't really go anywhere with this publisher and then i was in new york we i'd started a new job we were starting new lives there and i didn't do anything on it for for quite a while but then i sort of came back to it and i started sending it out to small publishers um and eventually um uh some were interested and i went with these guys obliterati um a brilliant small publisher who um, only set up in the last couple of years. Um, so it's felt like uh, it's been a long, it's been a long road to get to that point, and it feels really gratifying now to 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 get that kind of positive um, response for something that um, you know I felt like for a long time was sitting there um, on in my desk drawer, um, unread and. You know, I felt like this is something really good, and and I really want people to to see this and read this, and and um, it feels great that they 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 finally are. Yeah, definitely. I think the I think sometimes publication and having it out there and being able to share it with people is is really just a magical thing. It really feels like that sometimes. Absolutely. Um. You mentioned about the ancient Egyptian imagery. Mm. And when I've been looking around and seeing what other people thought of the book as well, that was that was a major theme that has reoccurred in lots of reviews and lots of people's comments in regards to the novel. Um, and a lot of people have said about how the, reading the novel awakened this great curiosity for ancient Egypt. Um, 
So is that something that you were always interested in or was that something that you kind of stumbled upon when creating the, the novel? Yeah, it's really an interesting thing because, um, uh, you know, I started... I'd started I'd started writing it um before I kind of um brought in the ancient Egyptian theme, but it's one of those ideas where once you've got it, you can't believe that you ever tried to write a novel without this because it seemed to fit so perfectly. Um where it came from was um I would went to um a brilliant uh exhibition at the at the British Museum um a few years ago on um the ancient egyptians beliefs about what happened when you what happens when you die and what they believed was that um a bit like um in christianity where um you go to st peter at the golden gate and he is deciding um whether or not you can come into heaven the ancient egyptians had a similar thing where um you would go um for uh, Anubis and some of the other gods and they would weigh your heart against a feather and if your heart um, was in balance with the feather that was great and you got to go to heaven which they called the um, field of reeds but if your heart was too heavy you got eaten by a appalling monster called the devourer who had um uh the mouth of a of a crocodile and um the body of a lion and the legs of a hippopotamus so he's sort of made up of um th three of the most fearsome creatures that an ancient egyptian could ever um could ever encounter and i just found all this so fascinating because in some ways it was familiar um you know in terms of the person dies and then somebody's weighing up whether or not they can go into heaven. That, that's, that's a familiar thing in, um, for, for, you know, in, in the West and in Christianity. But then in its details, it was so, it was so different and so um, strange and beguiling. And um, one of the things I liked the best was that um, they believed that um, you, your heart, they, they got the brain and they got the brain and the heart um, the other way around. So I think they, they believed that the heart was the seat of conscience and memory. And so when the heart was there being weighed up, one thing that they were afraid of was that the heart could speak up against you and basically grass you up and say, um, you know, actually, um, while we're here, <laughs> You know, you bet he did all this awful stuff at university or whatever. Like, and um, that just—I just thought that was a kind of um, an amazing idea. And to stop it doing that, you were supposed to hold in your hand a um, a scarab, and that would keep um, that would that would keep the heart from speaking up against you. So I incorporated all this stuff and. The, one of the reasons that it, it fitted so perfectly was that I think Nick, the narrator of the book, is a somewhat unreliable narrator. So one of the things that you're doing as a reader is you're weighing up how much you trust him. And so that's just perfect for this image of of, um, of the weighing of the heart. And it's true that um, I think that um, people have responded really well to that aspect. And I think it's partly because... 
you know, there were a lot of there were a lot of novels set in New York. It's a very familiar setting, and so I think what my book does that is maybe more unfamiliar is combine that with the ancient Egyptian theme. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things that I've noticed is a lot of people will post the cover um, across social media. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of posts like that. And the cover of a book is often the first impression a reader has and could be the only impression if they're not too taken with it. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. what did you want your cover to say to a potential reader and how did you come up with the final result for it? Yeah, I mean, I really agree with you about how important the cover can be. And I, I kind of thought about this a lot in the period when um, I'd signed with with Obliterati and then the, there was this kind of period where we were editing the book. And I was really thinking about this a lot because I think um, uh, I really wanted it to stand out both in in a bookshop, in a book, in a window, um, but also as a smaller image, you know, to work online. And I think that is where many people are going to be seeing it um, nowadays. And I think that it, it has to do both. Um, and I also, um, I wanted it to look like the prevailing style of literary fiction. Like I think before I... Um, before I'd sort of thought about this properly, if you'd have asked me what would the book have on the cover, I would have probably said, you know, oh, a great photo of New York, all the buildings, the fire escapes, the um, uh, the water towers, you know, the skyscrapers. But actually, if you, I, I went on a sort of mission to the um, Barnes and Noble in um, in Union Square in New York, near where we were living at the time, and I went and looked at all the literary fiction books and they didn't look like that at all and what the prevailing style seems to be today is um a kind of um Saul Bass style Hitchcock type um use of illustration with blocky colors um and uh not photographs at all like nobody for literary fiction no one would no one would use a photo mm. um so I took photos of all the ones I liked and I noted down who all the designers were. And then I just um, contacted all the designers and just asked them all, you know, would they be interested and how much would they charge? And the guy who did it, Jack Smythe, he was actually my first choice. And I'd seen on his website a cover that he'd done for um a book by Nick Laird called Modern Gods and I just thought it was brilliant and very much the kind of style that I wanted and so I I contacted him I contacted others and he came back quite quickly and said he was interested and I just you know snapped him up really because um I think he's brilliant and then the sort of editing, or I don't know if editing's the word, but the sort of process towards um, the final version of the cover was also really, um, really good. And, you know, there were lots of people involved, me, my publishers, and then obviously Jack, but he sent us sort of um, five or six designs and he'd done them all, um, you know, quite radically different. Um 
one of them, for example, was based around um, the grid of streets in Manhattan. That was really great. But I think we were thinking then that a bit like what I was just saying, you know, that there are a lot of books set in New York. There's a lot of books that use the New York iconography. Um, and, and the really unique thing that I had is this ancient Egypt idea. So we decided to use the ancient Egyptian imagery and then quite quickly we settled on this basic design and then we were trying to decide for a while which of these um, three ancient Egyptian images we would put on there. So in the end, we went for the feather. Um, obviously, as I was saying, they, they, when you were weighing up the heart, it had to be um, it had to be in balance with the feather. Then the the sun, which just seemed a very striking image, and um, t- somehow got across the 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 heat or the the geography of ancient Egypt. And then Anubis's face, which is in, instantly um, recognizable and very distinctive. But there were others that we tried, like we tried the scarab. I was quite keen for the scarab to to be on there, but um, actually it was just too complex an image and it, it didn't really work. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been great actually that um, people seem to really people seem to really like the cover and also um, whenever I, I don't know whenever I show anybody the book, they're always very complimentary about the cover. So. Mm-hmm. All credit to Jack, who did an amazing job. He's a brilliant guy. I think the the cover. I think part of why it could be so popular is because it it gives you a slight hint of what the book will contain, but not enough to right. spoil it. But it, it keeps you interested, and I think that that really is is sort of the markings of a good cover. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's that's great to hear, actually. Um, one of the other things that I, I noticed that was quite striking was the opening line. Um, Sooner or later, everybody comes to New York and I was no exception. I think it really, it, it gives you a great idea of what you can expect, but it also starts off the novel in a familiar way. So it, it sort of instantly bonds you to to the character of Nick. Um, so how did you how did you come up with that line? There, there was yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to do a number of things um, with that line. What one thing was definitely to draw the reader in immediately. So I really wanted to establish that New York setting um, immediately, but also um, I wanted to sort of establish that Nick has this kind of um, self-absorbed worldview so he he is obsessed with reinventing himself in new york and he imagines that everyone else feels the same way but i think that kind of also plays into this um feeling that i certainly had when i lived in new york that when you're there new york feels like the center of the universe you know that it feels like the center of the cultural universe um the most exciting place in the world um this melting pot of interesting creative people from all over the planet. And I think it probably um, hints at that too. Um, There's another similar line later on, actually, where he says that um, when, when, when you're in New York, um, it's almost hard to imagine that uh, 
England still exists. And I think, it, 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 again, it sort of gets at Nick's worldview and and um, something of the excitement and intensity of, of, of New York. I think the, the novel really captures what's magical about New York. I mean, I say that as someone that's never been to New York, so um, it, it made me kind of feel very, very close to it. And I think that is something that a lot of readers have enjoyed. Um, and you'll be heading back to New York where the novel's set in August for a launch of that are in New York waiting for you? Um, yeah, uh, I'm really excited about going back there in August and um, doing a book launch there. We had a really good book launch here in London and um, I'm hoping to do the same there. Um, started telling my friends and colleagues about it and they seem really excited. Um, and it'll also be, be really nice... Um, being back in in New York as uh, uh, as well, um, I think of it as my second home, really. Um, I'm working on a new book, uh, which is also set in New York, um, but it's set in the 1970s, in the era when New York was much more gritty and dilapidated, crime plagued, and I think. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to set it in that era was um, that was the kind of vision of New York that um, that I first sort of fell in love with, really. The New York in um, Mean Streets or Taxi Driver, where it seemed um, dangerous, but also, you know, incredibly thrilling and vibrant. Um, so I think I, um, I, um, I, I wanted to return to that era and when I moved to New York actually um moved to the East Village and you know my colleagues especially the Americans just thought I was crazy because it was just so obvious to them that the cultural center of gravity of New York had had moved out of Manhattan a long time ago and had moved to Brooklyn and they just thought like what the hell are you doing living you know moving into the east village but it was because to me you know that was that was the kind of place that that summed up the the new york that i'd first fallen in love with and um all that iconography was there the fire escapes you know steam rising from a manhole and and, and i loved all that stuff um so another thing in this book in the new one is that um you know, I know now that New York is more than just Manhattan. And so in this, in the new, the next book, The Weighing of the Heart is mostly set in Manhattan. But in the new one, I use the geography of, I go much further afield, basically. And there's a really important scene um, set in a brilliant part of town called Red Hook, which is... Um, by the water and used to be very industrial and still feels like it's really on the edge of the city. I love that part of Brooklyn. Um, other parts of the book are going to be set in um, in Queens. So I feel like, um, you know, I've really, one of the things since, since actually moving there rather than just 
fantasizing about living there is that um I've got to know the whole city and not just Manhattan. Yeah, definitely. So something new on the way. That's something for readers who've discovered you through the way into the heart to look forward to. Yeah. Um so you you had actually previously co-written and co-edited uh another book um based around the TV show The Wire. Um, so how did the two journeys to publication differ for you? It was really, it was it was completely different. Um, yeah, we were, I think about 10 years ago, The Guardian became quite notorious for the fact that so many of its journalists were completely obsessed with The Wire. And <laughs> I think that it was just a perfect program for Guardian Easters. Uh, the themes are like racism, post-industrial decay, drug legalization, education reform, media ethics. Like it just basically ticks every box for um, a Guardian journalist. So we all got really into it and we were writing a sort of weekly blog where we would review each episode. Um, and then um, the Guardian has a small... Um, well, it was small then. It's got a bit bigger um, book publishing arm, um, mostly publishing um, nonfiction. And um, somebody who worked for that part of the Guardian, Guardian Books, came to us and said, why don't we um, gather together all of these reviews of each episode, plus all the interviews that everyone's done with members of the cast and everything, put, put it all together as one book and... Um, try to get it out by by Christmas this year so what that meant was I think that in we were writing this blog every week and I think we were only up to the third season out of five so I think she gave us like it might have been a month or two months it was a really 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 um uh quick deadline um to to finish it so there were a number of us writing these reviews and then uh, a guy called Steve Busfield and me, we were the we were the editors and um we sort of rushed to to get it done and um and it was a brilliant experience. I mean, you know, thinking back that that was um part of my job. <laughs> That's the most fun I've ever had at work basically is writing this thing. It was just it was just great. But um I was thinking about this because um you know I was wondering if you would asked me about this and I went back and um, looked up some of the Amazon reviews because I remember um, there was one review at the time that um, really sort of um, amused me because I think it was the first like viciously bad review that I've ever had so uh, anyway I dug it out so I'm just going to tell you what it said it said um, the worst thing about the book are the reviews by Paul Owen which really drag the other reviews down. I found his reviews pretentious, very politically correct, looking for issues that really aren't there and against everything The Wire is about. Love The Wire, best program ever, but this book is a waste of money and major disappointment. <laughs> oh my God. I know. But, you know, I think um, I actually, you can't really take offence because 
the fact that my review was so distinctive that he hated it so much is actually <laughs> something to to be proud of, I think. Well, I mean, at least he remembered you. Exactly. You know, that's, that's a positive way to think about it. <laughs> So that whole, I mean, that whole experience was just, um, was brilliant. It was, a, it was a lot of fun and exciting. And, you know, a lot of my friends were into The Wire at the set, at, at the time. And I remember, actually, I became a sort of, um, I, I was interviewed a couple of times, like, as a sort of expert on The Wire. And that was just hilarious as well, you know. And, but, yeah, I love that. I love that program. And so that, that process was very different because that, I guess, was... Um, led by the publisher saying you know this is a book that that we as the publisher think would work can you put it together and I think you know uh, um, there is a, a lot of non-fiction non is done in that way I think um, mm -hmm. whereas you know for fiction you know it's been much more like this is my baby this is my darling that I've been working on for so long and then trying to get other people interested and trying to get mm. publishers interested so it's kind of was the opposite really I I definitely relate to, to what you say about it being your baby I completely hear that yeah. um so the as we've spoken about the novel really kind of captures what a lot of people love about New York um it is I think one of those places that is just universally loved I, I as I said I've never been to New York myself but I've never met a person who didn't like it and <laughs> you know <laughs> so it's it's a popular place um and it definitely comes across as you read through the novel that it's somewhere that's very close for you it's something somewhere that you feel very fondly about so Definitely. is there that that feels that way for you um no not not really it's always been um it's always been the place i i love the most i think um i sort of started off um being interested in it um probably when i was doing my a levels and we were reading books like the great gatsby and the catcher in the rye and then, um, then I went on to university to do um, American history and American literature. So I had a had a year abroad in um, in Pittsburgh, and that was when I first went to New York. Um, one Christmas with a couple of my friends, we went overnight from Pittsburgh on the Greyhound bus, and I really remember one of my friends nudging me and and waking me up as we as we drove it towards Manhattan and you know, I opened my eyes and saw this amazing skyline there dominated in those days by the Twin Towers. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a brilliant experience being there. And I really felt like, um, you know, a bit of what I was saying before about this, about it feeling like the most exciting place on earth, the place where all of these people, these personalities, um, these creative ideas combine in one place. And it's kind of, you know, visually, it, it, it's kind of, it, it's almost, a, the way it looks is almost a metaphor for that as well. Like it's all squashed in between the rivers and then there's so little 
space that everybody's building up so you see all these amazing skyscrapers and it feels like all these lives are being lived on different levels throughout the city and it's fantastic um so you know i really um i love I, I love the place um what i would say though is that i do love london too and um i would like to write about london i think london is a fascinating city for lots of the same reasons, you know, I think London is also a melting pot city. London is also a city where interesting and restless people come from all over the globe. And, you know, it's really my, it's been my home for, um, I think I moved here in um, 2001 and then um, uh, moved to New York in 2015 and came back last year. And coming back, you know, it very much feels like um this is my home so i think maybe after um after i've finished this this next one that's going to be set in the 70s i would like to to set something in london after that do you uh do you have a sort of set writing ritual when you're creating stuff or you know um, yeah i mean i think um one of the things that I sort of recognised quite early when I was first starting to try to write in my early 20s was that, um, you know, you would just have to carve out time to do it. Like, it, you would have to knock things out of your schedule specifically to write. So, you know, in those days, I guess it was not... Um, not going out so much in the week, not watching TV in the evening and trying to use that time to write instead. Um, and then sort of um, in the last few years, I think one thing that I've tried to do is um, I work shift work at work. So I am um, I, sometimes in very early and then I finish sort of um, in the mid to late afternoon and I've, I've found that if I then go to a secluded part of the office and just start writing then, I'm still in a very productive mood from, from work and I can often get two or three hours done then. And it might still only be seven o'clock in the evening by that point and you've got quite a lot done. But yeah, it's been, um, I think you've just really got to force it, really mm -hmm. got to make time. Um, and it's been hard actually because I'm I'm trying to work on this new one, but um, uh, since the way of the heart has come out, I'm promoting it, and that's also taking time. So I'm I'm trying to rethink now, um, you know, making time to do both basically to keep mm. on writing the new one and keep promoting the way of the heart and putting putting it out there. Just time, isn't it? Just yeah. <laughs> it's the the curse of all writers. There's never enough hours in the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. You you talked a lot about your your work as a journalist. Um. Do you think that the skills and experiences that you picked up in your career within journalism have been helpful to you when when writing creatively? Yeah, um, in some ways, you know, I think um, I'm, um, I've always been involved in 
um, news reporting and now um, news editing. And um, with with news, you know, you're you're really just trying to get um, get the information across to the reader in as clear and quick a fashion as you can. Um, and so writing fiction is quite different, really, because you're trying to do several things simultaneously. Um, you're trying to do things with structure, with with character, with dialogue. Um, you know, you might you might well not want to get something across to the reader quickly and clearly. You might want to do the exact opposite. Um, so there's quite you know there are there are types of journalism where um, some of these concerns come into play like I think magazine journalism and creative non-fiction I think that in those types of of journalism you're you're doing some of these things but it's not been it's not really been my experience um with news journalism but I do think that um one of the things that's helped me a lot is that um when I started off particularly as a local newspaper reporter I used to really love um catching people's um uh patterns of speech and idioms exactly and i think that's sort of carried over into the way i write dialogue um and then the other thing is that um we're always working to quite frantic deadlines at work and i think that that helps me um when i'm writing fiction like i think um if i need to get from a to b and i can't quite work out how to do it i I very rarely find myself just sort of sitting there staring into space. So what I usually do is just get from A to B in the quickest way possible and then say to myself, I'll just come back and improve that at, at a later date. And I think that means I rarely get writer's block. Um, so I think that's probably come from the way we work at, um, at the paper. You can buy The Weighing of the Heart on Amazon, Waterstones, Boyles, as well as other retailers, which you can find the details of in the description. It's been wonderful speaking to you, and I hope that you had a good time as the first guest on my podcast. Oh, thank you very much. It's been brilliant. Thanks <laughs> very much for having me on. You're very welcome. And you can find lots more information about Paul and his work at his website, which is paul-tudor-owen.tumblr.com and he's also on social media with the username Paul T. Owen on both Twitter and Instagram and all those links will be in the description below so you can check those out and find lots more about his awesome work. Let's teach our tears to change the world. Sweet resurrections, revolutions, a reunion of our souls and our smiles. You know, I'm radical, but sadical. That's all that I know how to do. Maybe I could learn to smile with you, and it'll be the most radical thing that this sad girl ever did. It's like a happier version of um, a poem I wrote like last year, Sad Girl's Love Song. 
it's weird saying last year because it kind of still feels like it wasn't last year but like it was anyways so I was kind of writing about how there are some people who kind of like people who are going through some shit and you know because I've been going through some shit since I was like literally born it feels some days so I I do I do sometimes like draw that kind of I don't know like sadness hunter I guess to myself by accident but I also I think I talked about this last week I I kind of sometimes I seek that out in other people um but again we're trying not to do that because we're growing up and shit I don't know um or as as much as someone like me can um but I I guess I kind of wanted to you know kind of write about a different ending for that you know maybe it's not just somebody uses up your your sort of your your feelings and and your ennui and then leaves maybe somebody tries to actually make things better they try and cheer you up wouldn't that be a nice thing you know so <laughs> um so that was kind of where I was where I was going with that also I just really wanted to you know use sadical I know, I, I, as far as I know, I don't think it's a real word. But it was my book and I was the boss. So I was like, today it is. That's all for this week's episode, but I will be back next week with a brand new episode. Um, in between now and then, you can find more of my work at my website, which is jenniferwan.com. Uh, you can also buy my new book, which is Old Brown Eyes is Back. Uh, that's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, my website. You can, you can buy it there. You can buy it on iBooks, all different kinds of places. It's it's everywhere. <laughs> um, you can also find me on social media with the username Miss J Squared on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, YouTube, um, all those different places. Uh, there are still a few tickets available uh, for the date I'll be doing on the 6th of July at the Leamington Poetry Festival. Um, there are details for that in the description of this podcast and on my website. Um, so if you did want to, you know, sort of experience this, but like in person, 
that is totally an option you have available to you. <laughs> um, a special thanks to my friend Amanda from Patreon. I love you so much. Um, and I will see you guys next week. Good night, my love.